Well, thank you, Mike. Name is Pat and Grateful and Happy Alcoholic. Hey, gang, what a terrific looking group of sick people. <laughs> Not a red eye in the joint. Anyway, uh, thank you, Mike, for inviting me to come over and for the kind word or two you said in there about me. Um, I always like to know if there's anybody here for their last meeting. <laughs> It's more important to pay attention to you than some of the others. I used to ask, can you hear me in the back? And heads would shake like this, and the people in the front would get up and go to the back, so I quit asking such questions. <laughs> Unfortunately, I only have two talks, one hour and all night, and I never know which one I've started. So <laughs> I'm rather accustomed to people getting up and moving on. If you need to, go ahead. It won't trouble me. But as my sponsor used to tell me, Pat, don't leave early. The thing you need to hear, the thing that might save your life might be the last thing said, so stick around for a while. Um, I don't have any, I, I don't like to spend too much time on, on the past. Uh, most of you know how to drink as well as I do, if not even better. Uh, I always wonder, what am I going to talk about when I get here? And people say, aren't you really nervous when you get there and talk? I said, why should I be nervous? I, I have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to say. But on the other hand, they have no idea what it's about to come out. So if anyone should be nervous, it should be those sitting there. Uh, I... Uh, there's so many things to talk about, especially when you've lived a long time. And I have lived quite a long time. Most people want to know how old you are and how long you've been in AA. I'll be 66 years old in March, uh, 17th, St. Patrick's Day. And I've been around here for about 29 and a half years in AA. Now, that, I don't say that to impress you because I know it wouldn't anyway. Uh, my grandmother had 84 years and never mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I, I think today I kind of like to take a trip down memory lane a little bit for me and uh, maybe a life beyond your wildest dreams. That's more interesting to me than some of the other things that I might talk about, although I like the steps and the traditions and what have you. But first off, I think we need a little definition of alcoholism. What are we here to talk about? Uh, alcoholism has many definitions. My grandmother used to say, an alcoholic's like a banana. Born green, turns yellow, and dies rotten. Well, that's, <laughs> that's pretty well what we, I think that defined me pretty well. And uh, But I like the ones like an alcoholic's a person with both feet firmly planted in the air, or a person who can consume a year's supply of anything in two weeks, <laughs> or, or a person who goes from adolescence to senility without passing through maturity. <laughs> well, that pretty well defines me right there. I, I'm still a little kid who hasn't grown up a great deal. And I always wonder, why in hell was I an alcoholic? Who, why was I chosen for that? And when I go back and look at my ancestry, my, my great-grandfather's name is John Lush. <laughs> I think I got a clue right there. <laughs> And John Lush was a Lush, and he drank till he was about 60 years of age, and he then found religion, the church, and he never drank again. Uh, his daughter, my grandmother, Frida, who's the one who had the 84 years of sobriety, uh, because she never drank, she saw the effects of that in her family with her father. And, you know, so some people catch on early. I, I didn't have any particular problems like that in my own family. Uh, my father drank, a uh, heavily drinker, I would say. My Uncle Pat, for whom I was named, uh, well, really, I was born on St. Patrick's Day. That had a little bit to do with it. But anyway, Uncle Pat uh, died of alcoholism. You know, he fell over and hit his chair, head on the back of a, uh, a chair in his apartment while he was full of Thorazine and booze. 
And <laughs> he was like 52 or three years of age. And I always admired my Uncle Pat. I thought he was the coolest guy on the planet. And my dad knew that and always offended my father that I liked his brother so much. And, and then I did. I, and so one day I remember I was in high school. My, uh, my dad got a phone call. Hey, uh, Uncle Pat is in some problems out here. He said, Pat, why don't you me? He said, why don't you go with me? Let's go pick up Uncle Pat. So I went to this restaurant out in, I, I grew up in California, out in Encino, and there was Uncle Pat laying underneath a car, <laughs> passed out. He said, my dad said, and this is the guy you admire so much, huh? <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, we do have this way about us that can be charming and witty and interesting in our good moments, and that's the part of Uncle Pat that I always saw. Uh, they always called me, though, Little Pat. You know, Uncle Pat was Big Pat and I was Little Pat. Let me give you all a clue. When you're little, you know it. <laughs> you do not need a constant reminder. Hey, Little Pat, Little Pat, Little Pat. <laughs> you know, that, that's just, I don't know that I ever grew up liking anything about me. I didn't like the name Pat to start with. I always sounded like a girl's name. I was skinny, little scrawny little fellow. And uh, But I didn't have any, you know, I have loving parents who stayed together until my father died uh, in the late 70s. My mom still lives with me today. She's 86 and a terrific gal. Always had a good example right in front of me. I just never somehow was able to follow her good example. And so I, I can't blame anything particularly on my family. Uh, I did grow up, though, with a lot of uh, inferior feelings, uh, not liking Pat. I didn't like anything about me. And I think I found my, I don't think, I found my first drink of alcohol when I was about 13 years of age, 12 years, 12 or 13. I was visiting an uncle up in Columbus, Ohio, and we found this, his son and I found this Mogan David wine, you know, and it was just like a grape juice, I, but it had this little effect to it, you know, we tried that. And, I, and honestly, I can say that I truly remember wanting to go back there every summer to to go back and just taste that Mogan David wine again. And I think I was, uh, I, I know that I enjoyed it from the very first go. I even like the taste of that. I, but anyway, nothing particularly going on until I get into high school and then eventually uh, want to join in to be a part of this boys club. And they take us out to the Mojave Desert. I'm out in California then. And we start drinking these country club malt liquor cans, little bitty things like this. And, and the next day when I woke up laying in a cactus or whatever, I was at Joshua's tree thrown up all over myself, they told me how wonderful I was. I was terrific and I was, you know, I was invited to be a part of the club. And, uh, and I actually blacked out that very first night that I gave serious drinking, I made a serious drinking attempt, and I truly believed that that's what would take place when a person drank. I didn't have any basis for, for, for knowing what it did or didn't do, but I just assumed you drank and you, you, know, you lose your mind, you pass out, and that's the whole deal. Well, that was to set up the whole pattern for most of my drinking. <laughs> I was just a pig. I, once I started, <laughs> there was no slowing me down. Uh, I think the little Patrick in me, though, caused most of the problems of my whole life. Uh, they say the child's the parent of the adult, and, and that's true. I was just a little bitty kid, and I think sometimes today I still am that same way. And uh, I was a very noisy fellow, like I am tonight. You hear me, hear me speaking with a loud voice. My third grade teacher sent a note home to my parents. When Patrick whispers, it's like a grown man shouting. <laughs> I still remember him. as about the only elementary teacher I remember, but I'll never forget that guy. <laughs> anyway, uh, our book says in there that we are noisy good fellows craving attention. 
And I don't think that changed a great deal my entire life. <laughs> Perhaps I didn't get it hugged enough when I was a little feller. I don't know what went wrong. But somewhere I turned left when I should have gone right. And it just began a whole series of progression of things that led my life from up here to down here. Um, I went to the University of Southern California since we won the football championship. I don't mind speaking about them this year. <laughs> anyway, uh, I went to the university there, and I live with a fellow by the name of Larry. You know, I used to say, if only my life was like this guy's over here, it'd be terrific. Well, Larry was a very wealthy guy. I moved in an apartment with Larry. And uh, we had a TV in every room, including both bathrooms. We had, uh, he, he had, I, I lived with him. He, he uh, had a second refrigerator installed the first week I was there, and it had the big hole cut in the center of the tapper installed, and the, the Budweiser man came every Saturday to our house delivering the kegs. We had one of the more interesting apartments on campus, <laughs> and Larry had at that time a Mercedes 300 SLR, and some of you folks might know what those are, but this is back in the 60s. The people in this car didn't know what the hell a Mercedes was, and he has this big, fancy, several hundred thousand dollar sports car. And I said, geez, if I could just be like old Larry, you know, I'd feel terrific. And when Larry was having trouble in school, the dean sent him a note, Dear Mr. Doheny, we understand you're having a few problems. Is there anything we could do to help you? Me, they said, Hilton, you're out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, this is Doheny of Doheny Drive and the teapot dome oil scandal and all that sort of stuff. Each grandchild got a million bucks when they were eight, 21 years of age. And Larry's best friend was Pete Peterson of Hot Rod Magazine, and they used to have their own private booth at the Luau, you know, reserved for. And I just went along, you know. I, I always put myself in uncomfortable situations and <laughs> always still feeling less than, but glad to be there anyway. <laughs> Oh, I loved it. Anyway, I said, you know, if I could just be like old Larry, my life would be made. But guess what? Larry died at 28, and I'm still going. Larry didn't like being Larry anymore, and Pat liked being Pat. And he had the same kind of problems that I had. It was just He just had more money and could get there a little more rapidly than I did. And so I learned a little lesson from that, you know, that just wanting to be like somebody else and re or just seeing them and their lives. You don't really see them and their lives. You just see them. I have no idea what's going on in anyone's mind these days or any day. And I, my little brother, Happy, uh, I admired my brother. Happy, I used to come home, you know, in the, or one night I came home, my mother was telling me, but I came in there about 2 a.m. or 2.30 in the morning in my parents' house. And my uh, I, I would get out the really sad country records. You know, I'm so lonesome I could blow my brains out kind of music. And, and, and I, of course, that bar is closed at two, so I'd have to have a place to continue drinking. It would be at my parents' house and drink that free booth. My sweet little mom would come out, you know, oh, Pat, what's the matter with you? Where, what's gone wrong in your life? And I don't even have a clue, Mom. I just don't know. Is that mean old woman I'm married to? She's thrown me out or something along those lines. And, and she... And I said, you know, if I could just be like my brother Happy. Now look at old Hap. I said, he's married, his wife loves him, he's got four kids, two cars, nice little house. I don't have anything, Mom. Well, I guess it, my mom told me, it must have, this is later in sobriety, she told me it was maybe a month later, Happy comes by about 2.30 a.m. to my parents' house. And he gets out the same kind of music that I was playing, and he begins to drink like I was drinking. Mom said, Hap, what's gone wrong in your life? She said, I don't know, Mom. He said, if I could just be like that scoundrel Pat. 
<laughs> you know, he doesn't have a wife. He's out flitting around the country. He has no children nagging at him all the time. You know, his, he just has it made, Mom. And, and again, that's kind of how we see each other's lives, you know, when we don't really know what the rest of the story is. And there's always the rest of the story. And most of us in alcohol, most alcoholics that I'm familiar with, myself included, we, we don't have life as a motion picture. We have life as a slideshow. We have a picture, and then there's a blank. And then there's a picture, and then there's a blank. <laughs> and, and sometimes we remember some of these cool pictures and forget those blanks in there, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was one of those kind of drunks that uh, I loved to hang out in the upholstered saloons. The, the really fancy bars, I, I really enjoyed those kind of deals. And you think about it's just a collection of lonely people uh, just sitting there. I mean, I, I was always alone in the crowd. I never felt like I belonged wherever I happened to be sitting. And of course, if you drank like I did, you'd buy yourself a drink, and then maybe somebody would buy you a drink, and somebody else. And you, you have all these lined up. You know, you always, if they buy you one, you're certainly going to put it there in the line. You, you would never turn one down. <laughs> you, have, you have this nice big line going for you. And anyway, uh, I, I just enjoyed drinking in places like the King's Arms and Blarney Stone and places like that out in L.A. that were my favorite haunts. And but again, I didn't have a lot of serious trouble early on. It's just I was gone all the time. I was always hanging. There was a time when I could probably go and have a couple of drinks, and I'd probably stay a couple of till 2 a.m. Then it would be a couple of days, and then sometimes it'd be a couple of weeks. It just got progressively worse for me. You know, I started out thinking I'm just having a great old time, and I, I lost a marriage or two along two of them along the way uh, through my my poor behavior. Uh, you know, I used to say, just leave me alone. I'm not hurting anybody. Just let, let, let me be my own, you know, let, let me be to myself. I, I won't hurt you. Just let me go. And so I would go and I would just sit there and drink and drink and drink. And of course, when you come home, uh, where have you been? You know, <laughs> I've called the police and I've called the hospitals and I've called everywhere trying to find you. You know, and I never have understood that. You know, they're so concerned, and then when they get home, they're madder than hell at you for even <laughs> even being alive. And I started crashing cars. There was one wife. She and I were out entertaining some folks in Hollywood one night. I was entertaining a client, and I got. I said, "Boy, we're having this great old time." Suddenly, this huge argument takes place, and today I have no clue what that argument was about, but it was big, and we're yelling and screaming. My wife and I, and I go outside the restaurant. And, I'm, and she comes following, we're still yelling, and suddenly I'm in a phone booth, I know I'm drunk, I'm calling the police to, I'm police, I'm calling the cab to come and take me home. Then there's five, suddenly five black and white cars surrounding my phone booth, <laughs> you know, all these police cars. And I, I couldn't imagine what they were there for, but I told them I was calling a cab, they said, well, you won't need one, and I said, well, if you're going with us, why, why would I be going with you? Well, they said, uh, I've been creating this disturbance. And anyway, they put me in. They, and, of course, I'm all dressed up in my suit and tie, and I'm feeling very official. And uh, I said, certainly there are bigger criminals in Hollywood than me. I, I'm just a little fellow drunk. I know I'm drunk. And they said, well, they weren't impressed with that, so they went on to jail anyway. So we get down there, and for some reason I had to take off all my clothes. I've never been very proud to do that anywhere. <laughs> and I had to, they had to examine me. And... You know, and I'm really getting upset about it. I knew that I had rights. I said, I'm going to call, make a phone call. I know I'm entitled to a call. 
And so I'd seen Perry Mason a number of times, and I was familiar with the process. So I started calling. I, I made a collect call to the White House of the United States. <laughs> I, I did. I did. And I... And they, they, the operator there said, well, they don't accept collect calls. And, I, and they hung up on me. So, but I'm very persistent. I called back. And, and I asked for this fellow there. And uh, they, they, I asked for a guy named Ron, Ron Z at that time. And uh, they told me he wasn't there, that he was at the White House out in San Clemente on the West Coast. You know, Nixon was already in enough trouble without me. <laughs> And here I am calling his press secretary, who happened to be a friend of mine for many years before. I hadn't seen him for 10 years. I have no idea what he was even going to call him for. But I was, I, I was trying to make myself, I think, very important in the police station. So that, But it did work. I did get a separate cell from all those others over there. I could see, in the, I guess it would be the drunk tank, because there were so many people over there. And uh, finally, I heard what I was saying. I said, why, why am I doing this? I'm asking myself. So eventually I, I called the only people I could possibly call, and that would be my parents, to come and get me. And of course, then my mom with those sad eyes again, oh, Pat, what's gone wrong? Oh, Mom, I don't know, but I promise you it'll never happen again. Well, it didn't for probably 60 days. And then, <laughs> then I'm in Van Nuys in jail again. Lousy. This time, though, I was in a bar. My brother owned one at the time, and so I, my other brother, John. So I started drinking with him, carrying on. He started telling me about my sister a little bit and who she was going with, and I decided I was going to go kill that guy. I didn't like him at all, didn't care for him. He should not be with my sister. I said, I'm going to go kill that guy tonight. So I take off my little car to go kill him. I mean, it's all on my mind. And I'm driving, well, I had a little Porsche in those days, and I'm flying down the road, and suddenly there's a huge crash, you know, and, and I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> The trouble with, with accidents when you're a drunk is is to try and fill out the accident report. <laughs> the next day when the insurance agent, what happened? I, well, I was driving down the road and there, this, uh, this car came to a sudden stop or something, you know, it was a big yellow station wagon, and I ran into it because they stopped so suddenly. And then you read the police report. There was a parked car, <laughs> little Volkswagen or something, you know, and I ran into it. <laughs> and they had been following me the whole way. They, they were about to arrest me anyway until I crashed. So off to jail I go. Again, and so mom again, you know, what's gone wrong? I still don't know, mom, but I won't be there again. And it was another maybe three or four or seven, I don't remember today how long it was, and there I am again. This time, though, it's about maybe 12 or 1 o'clock in the night, in the evening, and I'm, I get arrested in front of this Mormon church. <laughs> and the sad part, I mean, the, the part that disturbed me a, a lot was that I, I, I married a girl from that church once. And here I am stopped. And, and they try to convert, you know, to not smoking and not drinking and those kind of things that Mormons do. They had a lot. And, and I could just see all that congregation in there saying, that's what we're talking about. See? <laughs> I mean, that's a thought. And, and by then I wasn't defined. I just said, oh, shit. I just went out and put my hands behind. I knew where we were going. <laughs> you know, it was all over. So, anyway, I had a lot of people who tried to help me out. One of my good friends who was a member of this men's club downtown Los Angeles, and he said, Pat, we've gone into the racetrack and spent all our money that day. And he said, let's go down to the club. He said, you need to dry out of this. Okay. So away we go, and he's going to put me up for a few days. And we get in there, and, and we decide we, he decides we need a sauna. 
we should have a sauna bath first. So I said, okay. So we're sitting in there laughing, drinking something or another. The only difference was with us and the other people, we had our suits on and our shoes and our clothes. <laughs> <laughs> we're sitting there just having a good laughing how funny it was, you know. <laughs> well, anyway, of course, then I can't go anywhere. So he tries to give us a room, but they didn't have room. So we slept then on, on a hard table like they were the massage tables. And so I'm laying on the, I, I wake up the next morning of course, I have my clothes on, and and I'm laying there, and there's this white sheet on me, and this white, and I have no idea where I am, you know. And my mind, I said, you know, I saw this Hitchcock movie once. I, I remember the guy was not really dead, <laughs> but they thought he was. And the only thing that saved him was a tear came from his eye that let him know that he was still alive. Of course, I look, and then I look. There's George. <laughs> We've both been killed the night before. But anyway, we get up and he starts ordering us some Ramus gin fizzes and we start all over again, you know. This is the guy that tried to help me. Same thing. <laughs> yeah, he's still alive too, though. Anyway, um, those were the weird things that were happening to me in my life. And and uh, there, there's a host of things that, I mean, silly things. And Catalina wants entertaining. They fixed me up with this little gal. My friend's over there and we're going to go out and and party all night before we start partying. I decide, well, I think I'll take her out to the boat. We'll go out to the big, my friend's boat. So I stepped off the pier into the little dinghy. Well, of course, I step on the edge of it, turn it upside down, and I'm underneath the pier somewhere. She says, where are you? And I said, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't recognize anything here. <laughs> they, they still call me squeaky tennis shoes Hilton out there. Because <laughs> I went walking through town with all my, so well, never mind. Anyway, it was just one of those pitiful nights. Anyway, I went to jail again and speed, speed, this, speed this up a little bit. I didn't know that going to jail would be uh, really a, a thing of which one should be proud. I should have kept track of all those things if I'd known it had been a, something that you should bring up in meetings like this, you know, to, so you could boast about how many times you've done this or that. Anyway, I went off to jail and... I get out, and my youngest brother, Happy, calls me. He said, Pat, don't you think it's about time? I said, about time for what, Happy? About time you come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, oh, yeah. He said, we talked about this six months ago. I said, well, I have no recollection of that conversation. You know, and this is about 1031 Wednesday night. And, and young, it must have, he had to have left a, a, an AA meeting in Los Angeles. They run from 830 to 10. And for him to call me would have taken a tremendous amount of courage because little brothers don't tell big brothers anything. And But he called me. He said, it's about time. I said, well, he said, let's go to a meeting, Pat. I said, uh, well, when, uh, how about Friday night, Pat? And he said, uh, well, he said, I have a pigeon race Friday night, Pat. I can't make it. I have to wait till Saturday. And I, immediate resentment. That damn pigeon's more important than I am. <laughs> and he was right to do so. But anyway... Uh, that was my immediate resentment. I said, okay, okay, we'll go Saturday night. We went Saturday night to a place called St. Mark's. And when I went in there, there was a great big old fellow named Sam. He comes right over and he grabs me and he shakes my hand, you know, and he a big smile. And newcomer, he said, yeah, well, you're welcome here. He said, we've got a seat right here for you. And I thought it was my chair, you know. He sits me right down here. and oh, It was just a wonderful feeling. Truly it was that anybody would want me anywhere because I was used to being thrown out of places by that time. So here I am. And I hear people like me today telling these silly stories, and they made me laugh, and I hadn't laughed probably for at least a year or more. I don't know how long it's been since I had a really honest-to-God serious belly laugh. 
And I heard these crazy stories, and I noticed there wasn't anybody drinking. They were having coffee and things like that, which I still haven't learned to drink. But anyway, uh, we went there, and I, I appreciate those kind of meetings because people didn't have to be in such a hurry to get home. You know, when the meeting at 10, uh, we'd all then go to the restaurant du pars, and we would sit there, perhaps 50 people or more, till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And when you have been thrown out of your family and away from your, your wife or your spouse and, and you have nobody in the world, you know, just dying for somebody to sit and talk to a little bit, it was wonderful for me. They, they just made me feel right at home. And Monday night I went to a men's stag in North Hollywood. <coughs> in the men's stag, there was a, a fellow there who drove from Palmdale about 50, 60 miles to come to this meeting. I concluded, well, you didn't want anybody to see him going to an AA meeting. You know? So he stopped, stops off here. And he got up there and he said, newcomer, he said, if you've got any problems with drinking, you're in the right place. He said, you don't ever, ever have to hurt again if you don't want to. When you get here, you are fully paid up. And he said, if you'll give this program half as much time as you gave to drinking, you'll be a winner. That's what he said to me. I said, half as much time as I gave to drinking? Geez, that would be a lot of time. <laughs> you know, how could I commit such a thing <laughs> to such a deal? Anyway, a long story short, I, I did, and I'm here to say that what he had to say works, works every time. And I... I, I went to other meetings. I went to young people's meetings at that time. I wasn't a young person, just happened to go there. And I remember a young girl who, from the mouths of babes, you know, this little young girl, she said just one thing. She was talking about a coincidence, you know, and I'd never heard it at that time. She said, a coincidence is nothing more than a miracle whereby God prefers to remain anonymous. That, that's the first time I'd heard that. This is about mid-70s. And that just knocked me, I mean, from this little mouth, you know, came this thing. But I heard her story. It was unbelievable how this poor gal had, I mean, at her age of 14 or 15, the things she had had to endure in her life at that time. But anyway, all these things became enlightening to me. AA means something more than Alcoholics Anonymous to me. It also means altered attitudes. And there was a fellow who once wrote, that uh, the greatest discovery of my generation is that men can alter their lives by altering their attitudes. And I'm here to say that that's what takes place. So there was a famous, a famous Roman emperor once said that the guy from uh, what was that movie where the <laughs> the big Roman where they had the big gladiator. Thank you. When you get all of these words go away from you somehow or another, we need people like you. Anyway, I do, I do, I appreciate you. Anyway, Marcus Aurelius, he once said the only thing required for a happy, he said very little is required for a happy life, it's all in your way of thinking. Now, they've known that since, you know, year 500 or so. And, and I still hadn't caught on to that. You know, I didn't realize that I was my drinker broken, but my thinker didn't work correctly. It was giving me all kinds of bad information. And when I came here, though, things were just so wonderful. Uh, the, my, the lady who had taken care of all my insurance claims was in AA. She said, my God, Pat, rates will go down for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't move, I hit you. If you were a parked car, a tree, a freeway. <laughs> I got a car back on a Friday and totaled it again by Sunday. That's the way I drove cars. <laughs> I was always, give me the keys, I can drive. You know, I'm going home with my wife or yours. It didn't matter. We're, going, we're leaving here. <laughs> anyway, so I crashed all the cars. Anyway, Ronnie said, you know, she said, Pat, my husband, Walt, uh, always prayed for you. He had 25 years in AA. Walt worked for me. 
And he never once mentioned that. She said, he never mentioned it to you. He was afraid to. I said, he was afraid to do so. I would have fired him on the spot. <laughs> but I always said of her husband, he was the kindest, gentlest man I ever knew in my lifetime. And, I, and he had died before I got here. But she said, see, Pat, prayers do get answered. You've shown up. Well, I got a sponsor right away. My first sponsor was a lady, contrary to recommended procedures. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know who recommends those things. So we never do anything we recommend. But anyway, she was about 65 years of age, and she had a penchant for living the likes of which I don't know anybody to this moment that does. She owned a hotel once up in San Francisco. She was a socialite woman. But very interesting, she was running an alcoholism program for the post office. And Betty was a lovely, lovely, lovely human being. And I picked somebody that I wanted to be like. I wanted to enjoy life the way she enjoyed life. I didn't want to say I'm sober and it sucks or it's a shit. I wanted to say I'm sober and I enjoy every damn day of my life. And that's the way Betty lived her life. So she used to have this sign up on her office, life's in session, are you present? <laughs> you know, that's what's going on while I'm scheming and devising, planning all these weird things. So she then taught me how to get along with this thing. And I'd gone to a meeting, I was about 60, 90 days sober, or off of alcohol anyway, and, and Chuck Chamber was talking that night. He said, my book don't say tear my will in my life with care of God and value. Well, I said, well, how the hell did he know? You know I've, been taking, I've been taking value for about 12 or 15 years by now. I've never gone anywhere without my vials of value. And uh, I didn't have to drink a lot in the morning, just a handful of pills and I'd be calm again. Anyway... We talked about this and called the drug people. I said, you know, I made a decision, just like anything else you do in your life. It's just simply a decision. A person's life is nothing more than thoughts, acts, habits, and character. Your thoughts become your actions, which become your habits, which become your character. And so I made this decision. I, If I die, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm going to die sober. I'm not going to die without any of these damn pills in my system. And I invited my sponsor over, and we stood in front of this toilet, and I had all my vials of things. I started pouring them in there. And then I think I started crying. <laughs> I wanted to get in. I wanted to get in there with him. <laughs> it was a very moving moment for me. To, to, it was to flush it. And I'll tell you, I sat here for perhaps two years. Always grinding my neck, you know. Always nervous and tense and sweating. All these horrible things were happening. I didn't have anything to keep me cutting any, any chemicals to to calm me down. But I let them go. I didn't give a damn. I said, if I die, I die. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. Don't go down sober. And then, of course, didn't have any emotional relationships. You know, they're warned again for the first year, don't get involved in any of these things. So I said, Betty, I haven't been involved for six or nine months. Do I get credit for good behavior? My, my ex-wife had thrown me out, and she said, no, Pat, you don't. And so she brought me a pillowcase with a lady's face on it. <laughs> and, and I slept with that through my first year. I did, it's true. <laughs> These are the kind of people I surrounded myself with who really were helpful, had all the right answers. Then they said, you know, step one really is talking about physical aspects of, of our disease, and they suggest I go up and check out with the doctor, see how things are going. So I get in with, into the doc, and he gives me a rundown of what's going wrong with me and my teeth, what's wrong with them, and all the things I had ignored. So I started getting better, and then, you know, I kind of got the idea that vitamins were good for you. Well, I would say within a week I'm taking 100 vitamin tablets a day. <laughs> 30 in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. You laugh, but I feel good every day. I don't take 100 a day, probably 10 or 15. <laughs> but they're multiples, and they contain lots of vitamins. 
But, uh, you know, I, I started doing these, I started getting interested in my own self, in my own health. And I found that I did have some problems, and I found there were some solutions to those things. I just had to get on with it. I think that's the whole deal here. I used to say that it, all the things AA gave me, it, it gave me me. It gave me a me that I could. You may not be able to stand me at all, and that's your problem. But I have learned to live with me, you see. And each day I wake up, I say, you know, this is a day never lived by a human being before. Nobody ever saw today before today. And even the greatest of folks of history like Lincoln or Washington, they're not here today, but we are. And I said, I've been chosen to see this particular day. Why would I want to mess it up with some lousy thought about anything? You know, about anything. I have bad moments, but I don't have bad days ever in AA. Never have had, will never have. Because I make a decision I don't want any. I want to enjoy life. So, anyway, I surround myself with these kind of folks who were wonderful. Uh, I was talking earlier with the fellows about this fellow named Herb. I used to hang out with Herb. was about 35 years sober when I got here, and I spent five years with this guy and carried him to meetings several times a week. Herb was uh, a world-class scientist. He studied with Einstein. He worked with Einstein. He had two Academy Awards. He danced with Sid Charisse. He was a concert pianist. And as Clancy would say, when Herb is drunk, he can't find his ass with both hands. <laughs> but Herb was a wonderful human being. He always told me, Patrick, he said, you know, don't listen to those people who say be afraid of the pink cloud. He said, I've been on one for 35 years. He said, enjoy your life. Enjoy every moment of your life. And don't listen to those others who are so afraid to enjoy life. So I listen to Herb, and I enjoy my life today, and I enjoy smiling. I surround my people, my my, people, my life with people who enjoy living. If you, you know, people who are depressed and down never want to rise to your level. They want to suck you right down where they live. <laughs> Einstein once said, if you spend five minutes with a negative person, you have to spend 55 minutes with a positive person to offset the effects of that. <laughs> and how much, what time? I have no idea. Oh, okay, we got a little bit of time. Okay. Uh, if, if I don't get onto this subject of God, which I, I need to do, uh, I, I've missed the whole deal of this thing. Because the book says the main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And I didn't know much about higher power. I don't think I ever disbelieved in such a thing. I just never thought much about it. And But I, when I took a, the time to look back at my life and all this emptiness that was roaming inside of me, it didn't matter how many girlfriends I had, how many cars I had, how much money I had, how much I drank, or how many pills I had, I didn't feel ever right in here. So something always was missing. I needed more, 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 more. And I never felt comfortable and happy. So anyway, they start talking about this higher power thing, HP. Spots you said, got HP sitting right around my shoulder. HP to me, me meant things like Hollywood Park, Highway Patrol, Half Pint. I could think of a lot of HPs <laughs> that were all higher powers of mine at that time. And so anyway, I read this book once. Well, when I came out, Chris Christopherson had just come out with the song, Why Me, Lord? You know, what did I ever do that was worth loving you? Maybe I could show someone else what I've been through myself on my way back to you. And that made a whole lot of sense to me. That song came out in the year that I got sober. And it, you know, I finally was getting some kind of a purpose for even being alive. Maybe I could be of help to somebody else on the damn planet. You know, help them understand what had taken me and find out there is another way out. But I still don't understand what this higher power thing is. And if you think about it, the, the God or an infinite being I find, is infinite. There are no boundaries to a thing called higher power. It's, it's limitless. 
Whereas human beings are finite, we have a very defined boundary. We can only think in defined areas. We don't know undefined things. And so therefore, an infinite thing, a finite thing, can never comprehend an infinite thing. So I have no way to understand what this higher power is. And my friend Herb always told me, Pat, reserve the right to change your mind. Because as you grow and you live and have experiences, new data will come to you and you will formulate new visions of what is to be, especially in spirituality. And then I read this book that came out about that time called I Ain't Much Baby, But I'm All I've Got. <laughs> Jess Lair's book. And in there he says things like, uh, you know, all we have to do is make the move from our head to our heart. God's carefully concealed in the last place an alcoholic would look within himself. And he said, who are you to say there is no God, as it says in our book? And I think about things like that. He said, but it's kind of like, you know, if you were out here and you were in the woods and you were lost and you look up, oh, you see the North Star and you start following that North Star, somehow or another you get out of the woods, but you don't ever get to the North Star. And that same thing then became true when I began to follow this thing that I don't understand, this power, somehow or another I got out of the woods, but I didn't ever get to the power itself. But... I concluded that if self gets self into trouble, must take power greater than self to get self out of trouble. I was good at getting into the trouble. Now I have learned I connect to this thing called higher power. And uh, I can only suggest that I, I've often said, if you don't know me, you haven't missed anything. But if you don't know God, you've missed everything. Because it is the whole, I don't care what name you apply to, I like the Indian's concept of the uh, of the great spirit as well as anything. I think there's a great spirit that works for my general well-being and everything I do in my life. And looking back today, I, some of the things that I thought were just horrendous things, like that, that uh, second wife who told me never to come back, I, thought, I went to see her when I was about mm, 60 days in the program, and I carried her a birthday present on her birthday, you know, and I said, boy, you know, I've got this new way of life, and I brought you a present, and she said she didn't give a shit about my new way of life or my president. Get out! <laughs> Boy, you know, and that night I said, oh my God, this program, you don't even get your wife back. And, <laughs> whew, was I lucky. Anyway, <laughs> was I? That's how, well, sick people attract sick people. Sick people don't attract well people, you know. And Unfortunately, in this disease, we expect sick people to make well decisions, and we don't. We're sick. We don't do it exactly right. We have to be patient with each other. Anyway, so... Uh, that girl, I have to tell you one more thing. We, I went to the, see the doctor before I came to AA, and my blood pressure was sky high. And he he started feeding me. That's where I got onto Valium, and he gave me some B12 shots and female hormone shots. And why I don't know. Uh, I didn't grow any more hair. My breasts didn't get any larger. <laughs> but but he gave me all these shots, and he said, Pat, you, what you need to do is settle down. You need to go out and find yourself a new wife. And so I, you know, I went to all these various saloons looking for her. And <laughs> I would never think of Kroger's or the drugstore. But we, anyway, we found each other and we deserved each other. And her father was the featherweight champion of the British Empire. She was a little Scottish girl. I used to call her my glassy lassie. Anyway, she had this uh, from Glasgow. She was. Anyway, uh, I tell you about her father again, not to impress you, but to let you know. Every time we got in a fight, who won? She used to beat the hell out of me. This. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't get her back. And uh, But the point of that story was, in my first 60 days, I heard an AA speaker say, there isn't a thing that could happen to you the drink would make better. And she told the story of her husband dying and of her sponsor having her leg amputated and how each of them concluded there isn't a thing that could happen to you that would that 
that uh, could make your life, uh, that could make the situation any better. And that was the only thing I remembered that night. That's why I say you stay to the very end because you might hear the one thing that might be that important to you in your life and you don't know where it's going to come from and how it may get there. But I remembered that. And I had to go make amends to that lady who made that statement because I thought she was such a smart-ass little old woman and had all these people following around. You know, I was very envious of the way she operated her life. And I had to go see Barbara afterwards. I said, I want to have lunch with her. I said, I wanted to tell you that I owe you an amend for how I've been feeling about you and thinking about you. It's just my own envy and jealousy. But I want to tell you, you saved my life with the one sentence that you said. And that's because it's the only thing I remembered that particular night. So, anywho... Uh, uh, in, a, in California, especially in Northern California, we have a little saying, give them strokes, not pokes. I think when you got here, you've been kicked in the ass enough. I don't think you need one more idiot to tell you you're no good or you're a jerk or you're lousy. I think you need one human being to stand up and give you a great big hug and tell you you can make it too. You can do it. And it requires a lot of patience on our part to do that because we want them to do what we want them to do and they, we don't often do what we want, <laughs> we want them to do. And so... Uh, I think it's really important. And, and there was a story about this fellow up in Tennessee, and he was an illegitimate child. And he said everywhere he went, he had to walk around like this, looking at the tops of his shoes. He couldn't look anybody in the eye. He always had to look like so, and because he didn't know who his father was. And so he was in church on one Sunday, and he said that the new minister had come to town, and the new minister always is fast to get to the back of the church before you get out, you know, to shake your hand and talk to you. And the kids say, he tried to beat him out, but the minister was fast. He got there and he shakes his hand. He said, young man, he said, uh, whose child are you? He said, never mind, I can see. He said, you're a child of God. Go and claim your heritage. He said, this man said, that one sentence changed his entire life. At that moment, he knew who he was. He then became governor of the state of Tennessee twice from that. But when he says to me, that changed his whole life, I know not to be very casual with my comments to you. I know that one little thing I say might be significant enough to help you with your life, you know, to make you realize how valuable you are. It does say our father, doesn't it? So we're all kind of in this thing together. But it's a wonderful story to me to let us know, don't <laughs> take your comments a little more seriously sometimes than we do to be mindful of the other person and where they might be in their life. We're all just trying to find our way through this deal, you know, this maze, and we go lefts and rights, and maybe we should have gone up versus down, but wherever, we all need a little help on the path, and I think the more encouragements we get, the, the more success we would have. One of my other favorite stories that helped me understand how to appreciate myself a little bit was that story in the other book, big book about the prodigal son. You know, I, I was kind of like that, my brothers and I, and I was kind of the kid that went off to Florida, you know, and took my dad's money, spent everything, wine, women, and song, and big cars, and finally I ended up sleeping with the pigs, which would have to be pretty demoralizing for a Jew, especially since the... <coughs> well, I mean, uh, that's where it was, you know. I'm, I mean, that's the prodigal son. He ends up living with these horrible places, you see, and that's what happens. We we go out having this big old wild life and suddenly we end up down here with nothing. When he finally decides he's going to go back home to mom and dad's place and on the way back, you know, his dad doesn't wait for him to get there and chew his ass out. He runs as fast as he can. He prepares a party for him, comes out, welcomes his son back to home again, you see. And he prepares a big party and gives him rings and fancy clothes. His dad was glad to have him come back home again. And I'm told, I don't have this on great authority, that the son who stayed at home was the founder of Al-Anon. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, 
I, I don't know if that's true or not. It was a rumor. <laughs> but it helped me understand how I could fit back in. You see, I didn't feel worthy to have a higher power. I didn't feel well enough to even be accepted by such a thing as a, a, a an all-loving uh, thing, spirit, great spirit, higher power, however you choose to look at it. I just did not feel worthy because I hadn't done anything to feel worthy, you know. Self-worth comes from things self does, and self did some lousy things, so self doesn't feel very valuable. Anyway, what? How much time? We're about out, almost. Um, sponsorship is another key to me in this program, and I don't think people today have it anywhere near as good as I had. I think I was a fortunate guy to be surrounded by people who understood what AA is, who understood what this program was, and who would devote as much time as I needed. Some of the things I see today shock me, and I'm, I don't know how some of us stay sober, to tell you the truth. Uh, but I, I think it's a very important, it's one of the most important things, this bond that takes place between two people. And I have always defined sponsorship as one drunk helping another, and you're never sure which one's being helped. And because I would say that I have probably received more benefits from this than they have from me. They would call me on Friday, hey, Pat, you going to me? Well, I couldn't say no. I'm going to watch a baseball game tonight. Well, of course I'm going to me. What? Where'd you want to go tonight? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it is a key, I, I think. Uh, I, I, didn't, I, I kept that other sponsor all my life until she died, but I added another sponsor shortly after her, and he was a fellow from, from the penitentiary from San Quentin. Now, I, I choose a guy who's tell. I call him Mr. Hallmark. And why? Because it's when you care enough to get the very best. I, I, I want a guy who could just lay around on me, not, not put up with my bullshit, just say, Pat, this is what's really going down, this is what you need to do. I'd say, but, but, but I'm going to the, the movies on Friday. And he said, yes, was, is correct. You was going to the movies on Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight you'll be going to Terminal Island to the prison down, prison down there and you'll be doing this or to Skid Row. He used to go down Skid Row, Clancy's joint down there, and I'd stand up there and I'd make talks to people just like we're talking here. And I can remember saying to everyone, you know, I don't know why you're sitting there listening to me and I'm up here talking to you. I don't know why I'm not sitting down there and, you know, and you're up here talking to me. I have no clue why that worked out in my life. I'm grateful that it did. I accept this grace, this gift I have been given that I don't deserve, and I have been given this life beyond my wildest dreams. Make a big point. I, I was a little bitty guy, not very successful in my life at all, in any department you want to measure. Let me tell you one about business. Before, let's see, maybe I was perhaps 10 years sober or so, and, and my life turned into a dream since coming to AA. Things that happened, I got jobs that my life became a vacation. I've traveled around the world maybe 50 times, so most of the countries of the world been to AA in most countries of uh, of the planet. And... Not because Pat's a great guy, just because that's what AA afforded to me. It gave me these opportunities. I didn't look for a job. Jobs came and found me when I came to AA. And so I was this uh, little insignificant sort of a fellow. And I got a call once from this guy who wanted to start a business. He was up in New York. And he came down to Philadelphia to meet. And this guy was a multi-billionaire. And he heard about something, and we got put together. Now, it was inconceivable to me, a man of that of that standing would he even say hello to me, much less come down and visit with me and spend a day with me and form a company with me and became a 50-50 partner with me, you see. And, and, and this was just beyond my wildest dreams. When I say, you know, booze will show you how low you can go, AA will show you how high you can go. 
very clearly. I personally know a man who started in the White House of the United States who ended up on Skid Row. I personally know a man who started on Skid Row who ended up in the White House. And the only difference was their drinking habits. That guy I mentioned to you that I called earlier in Nixon's cabinet, he died this last year. Chronic alcoholic. I've been calling for a year, trying to get help for him. His wife, everybody was pleading for him. But he couldn't appreciate his own value. It's what happens to us. Our minds get so distorted, you know, with the drugs and the booze and all the other crazy thinking things that we do. Anyway, that's my point. It'll show you how high you can go stick around this program. It's time to go home, I'm sure. Yep. Uh, people get resentments if you stay one minute extra, so I, <laughs> I, I'm the last to want to do that. But there's always one little story that lots of fellows have told, and I always like to tell it, and I haven't heard it today, so I want to tell it, if only for me. It was a story about the, the auctioneer, where they start the, the auction, and the little man comes up with this old violin, crusty-looking thing, and the bidding starts. What am I offered for this violin? It goes one dollar, two dollars, three bucks, four. And the bidding stops, whereupon this elderly gentleman gets up out of the audience, he goes up, he dusts off the case, he takes out the violin, tightens up the strings, fixes the bow, and begins to play. And the most beautiful music they've ever heard comes from this violin. And the bidding starts again, 100,000, 200, half million. And you'll ask me, what is the difference in those two scenarios? It's the touch of the master's hand. Well, that's the same story as the way it works with us. When we come here, we sell our bodies for $1, $2, our blood for 3 bucks, 4 bucks. <laughs> We do, and yet after you come around, you hang around AA for a little while, the bidding starts again, and it becomes invaluable. There's no price on my life today. And you ask me then, what is that difference? It's the touch of the master's hand. So with that, I want to say thank you very much for letting me come and share with you a bit of my life today, and I appreciate your mic for asking me here. And I wish each of you the same success. A book does say, see to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. That includes everybody here. <laughs> you know? So enjoy your life. Thank you. <laughs> I won't believe it. One more thing. <laughs> I like that so much as an encore. I have one more thing. <laughs> I, I brought these to leave with you. Uh, this is a little deal that I like to read every day. It's called The Art of Living Each Day. Just let me read it to you, and if you want it, you can come get them. I, I made 50. I didn't know how many people were here. It says, Each day is a lifetime in miniature. To awaken each morning is to be born again. To fall asleep at night is to die, is to, die to the day. In between waking and sleeping are the golden hours of the day. What we cannot do for a lifetime, we can do for a daytime. Anyone, wrote Robert Louis Stevenson, can live sweetly, patiently, lovingly, purely till the sun goes down. Anyone can hold his temper for a day and guard the words he speaks. Anyone can carry his burden heroically for one day. Anyone can strive to be happy for a day and to spread happiness around. Anyone can radiate love for a day. Anyone can rise above fear for a day and meet each situation with courage. Anyone can be kind and thoughtful and considerate for a day. Anyone can endeavor to learn something new each day and mark some growth. When we fail and fall short, let us forgive ourselves and consider the words of Emerson. Finish each day and be done with it. Tomorrow is a new day. You will begin it well and serenely with too much, too high a spirit to be encumbered by your old nonsense. Live a day at a time. Remember that tomorrow is another day. Thank you. That's it. <laughs>
you have this back. <laughs>